Hi, Jim Herlihy here with the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Let me tell you about Spotify for podcasters. Whether you're launching your first podcast or a seasoned podcaster like me with 400 episodes, this is the perfect platform for you. Why? Because it's so easy to use. Here's how it works. It lets you record and edit podcasts from your phone or computer and then distribute them on Spotify and everywhere else where podcasts are heard. You can also do video podcast. It's free and you can earn money through ads and subscriptions. You can also connect with fans and listeners through Q and A's and polls. And best of all, you're part of the Spotify global brand with a reputation for high quality audio and reliability. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. So take it from me. Bring your podcast to the next level with Spotify for Podcasters. The San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 12, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, talking with Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. Our guest today is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Southern California, Hajar Yazdiha, and a faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute. She joins us from her office in Los Angeles. Hello, Hajar, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Hajar, please take a few moments to tell us about your work at USC. So I, I'm lucky enough to be an assistant professor of sociology at USC. It's such a rich student body. And I'm really an expert on the politics of inclusion and exclusion. And so my new book, The Struggle for the People's King, is speaking to a lot of the questions that really make up my larger research agenda, which is centered on these questions of the social forces that bring us together and keep us apart, these questions of what it takes to feel like we belong, whether to a community or to one another. And my research really shows how we have these powerful institutions like law and media that categorize groups into an us and a them and really make the boundaries between us feel real and natural. And so I also teach classes to both undergraduates and graduate students on social movements and grassroots participation. And so really there's this through line in all of my work that thinks about these questions of identity and our imaginations of what type of society could be possible. Very impressive. Tell me, what inspired you to write The Struggle of the People's King? Yeah, thanks for that question. I love an origin story. <laughs> so, you know, my book really is rooted in the questions that I was thinking about during graduate school. And I was a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 
is a place where we had a controversy around a Confederate statue on campus. And so at the same time that I'm doing research, thinking about questions of race and belonging and national identity, I'm also watching this case that's playing out in the news. And it was the case of Abigail Fisher, who was a white student in Texas who was rejected from UT Austin. And she took this case to the Supreme Court to basically take on affirmative action, which coincidentally, we are standing by to hear from SCOTUS to you know hear what's going on with affirmative action. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm watching this play out and I'm really taken with the fact that this case is resting on this argument that's using the language of civil rights, the real legacy of the civil rights movement, and turning it on its head to argue that this is reverse racism against white people. And so just my, my sort of fascination and sense of, you know, being really disturbed by this case got me digging deeper. And I realized that this is a really much broader phenomenon that Mm -hmm. is really rooted in a cultural phenomenon of misusing Dr. King's words and that had been going on for a long time. And so that's really where the research started, sort of tracing these invocations over time. Well, before we get into the book, as I read the book, it seemed to me that over the last 40 years, groups of either the left and the right as diverse as LGBTQ and gun rights, respectively, have sought to politically appropriate the mantle of legitimacy of the civil rights movement to further their own agendas. Does any attempt to politically appropriate the movement for other causes weaken civil rights in our collective memory? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. So, you know, one of the things I thought about in the book is this very question. Is it just a problem that it's being, you know, used by all sorts of people, the memory of civil rights, the the memory of Dr. King? Is it really a problem that he be upheld and invoked in all sorts of different political settings and cases? And the short answer to that question is no, it is not actually a problem on its own. But what happens is that the political misuses of that memory over time accumulate and they really generate this kind of divergent social reality. And so let me actually take us back a little bit, because I think part of the story is the question of, is this new? Mm -hmm. You know, is this just sort of a rhetorical one off where politicians occasionally blunder and, you know, misuse King's words or decontextualize them? And one of the big findings that I really want listeners to take away is that the misuses of Dr. King and the memory of the civil rights movement are intentional political strategies Mm. with a long history. And so they really go back to the making of the King national holiday in 1983 and the debates that led up to it. Mm -hmm. And so it really doesn't mean the same thing for a minority rights movement, for example, when we think about historically minoritized groups like LGBTQ coalitions or immigrant rights groups. It's not the same thing when they take up the memory in order to pursue their own rights compared to right-wing groups co-opting that memory, distorting it, and revising it in order to preserve their own power. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, as we chatted before we went on the air, specifically for the for the civil rights movement, and I'm old enough to remember the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, there really was a sense, certainly in my family and in our home, there really was a sense of great accomplishment when those landmark pieces of legislation, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the 1968 Fair Housing Act, There really was a sense of accomplishment when those great landmark pieces of legislation were passed. And again, looking back at the civil rights movement, I have always seen as the logical next step in the 
Well, first of all, we had the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and then unfortunately followed by 100 years of Jim Crow and segregation, which was in fact institutionalized by the Supreme Court decision Plessy versus Ferguson 1896, separate but equal, but then was overruled in 1954. And then through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was this dismantling of segregation. So that civil rights movement that I remember as a youngster, and of course my parents were very supportive of it, that civil rights movement that I recall was was unique, I felt was a unique next step in the the emancipation of black people and restoring fair rights to black people. So I've always seen the civil rights movement and the me- my memory of the civil rights movement as being a uniquely African-American experience for myself. So when any, when, whenever any other group uses that mantle, it, it kind of, it, it sort of irks me somewhat because I, I, I feel as though it's, it's, uh, it's uniquely legitimate to African-Americans myself. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the things that comes up is if you actually look at the making of the King holiday, this is a moment where King's memory, the memory of the civil rights movement becomes domesticated. So it becomes institutionalized in American collective consciousness in a way that makes it sort of a domain available to anybody. Mm-hmm. And this is strategic. So, you know, I, I mentioned how there's sort of this long trajectory of these intentional misuses of King's memory. And it actually goes back to this moment where I always think it's important to draw out exactly what was happening behind the scenes. So it's not that President Reagan actually thought, you know, actually King's pretty great. Let's institutionalize him and remember him forever. What happened was Reagan himself was pretty opposed to civil rights. He had a history of opposing civil rights legislation. He had a history of saying sort of derogatory things about Dr. King and the movement behind closed doors and actually occasionally in public as well. And so he really was opposed to the national holiday. And what happened is that this political pressure eventually made it more advantageous to him to woo white moderates by showing his support for the holiday Mm-hmm. while assuring his allies behind closed doors that he was only going to be commemorating a very selective version of Dr. King, and it's one that would be sanitized. So it's one that would be whitewashed, removed of its complexity. It would erase Dr. King's radical legacy, the context for why Dr. King was fighting for what he was, why he was murdered. Mm -hmm. And instead, they would use King as a symbol of American exceptionalism, individualism, and ultimately a tool to maintain and actually build a sort of neoliberal project which in the case of Reagan meant rolling back civil rights legislation to really build up this idea of a free market where because in this version of the story, racism had ended with Dr. King. Now, if there was racial inequality, it was your own fault. It was a product of individual failings. You needed to simply pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And so this is really where the sort of co-optation of King begins and continues to build. So it's very easy for us you know, to sit here and say, well, it seems crazy. You know, how could you possibly co-opt King and, and use him for causes he would have been completely opposed to in his mm-hmm. lifetime? It seems, you know, disingenuous. It, it seems paradoxical. But when you actually follow this long trajectory, as I write in the book, you actually see that it's been building for quite some time. And it, it makes sense that people not only do it quite frequently, but that they actually believe it. And so they believe that King would have been opposed to affirmative action, that he would have been opposed to aspects of the Voting Rights Act. 
So while I love the, the way that you draw out this sort of individual memory of experiencing the civil rights movement as, you know, a young child in New York, and, you know, just before the show, you were telling me this, this really powerful story about how a lot of your awareness came through your father. Mm-hmm. And that political socialization is so critical here because collective memories are always experienced on an individual level as well. And so I don't want to make it seem as if the, the co-optation of King is widely accepted. Certainly, so many communities, including specifically Black communities, reject that notion and have resisted it and carried on his true legacy in their families and their communities. But the way that power and elite power specifically has really, you know, not only institutionalized, but really legitimized a co-opted and revisionist history of King and the civil rights movement, that is where the danger lies. Talk to me about collective memory. Unfortunately, here in the United States, we don't have a great respect for history. It's unfortunate that the civil rights movement of the 1960s and into the 1970s, for young people who were born in the 70s or 80s, that it's like ancient history. Talk to me about the power of collective memory and how collective memory in the case of the civil rights movement and Dr. King, how that has perhaps deteriorated and kind of watered down his message over the years? You know, one of the things that came up frequently in the book is this idea that we really have to understand the past in order to pursue a collective future. And so it's that famous Orwell quote about who controls the past controls the future. And this is so true when you think about the making of collective memory. And let me just define that quickly, because mm-hmm. collective memory is sort of distinct from history. And so where history is a sort of accounting of the moments and the specific historical contingencies, and it's triangulated against sort of different people and characters, and there's a formal social scientific process for documenting it. Collective memory, on the other hand, is more of a sort of cultural process. And so it's this socially constructed story that emerges over time about the past that really tells us who we are. And so collective memory is really a process of storytelling, and it becomes central to our conception of identity, you know, whether national identity or even sort of a group identity, for example, the collective memory of being a Native American in the United States compared to being a Jewish American. And so this larger collective memory is really pivotal for understanding who we were in order to understand who we are. And in so many ways, this memory shapes our future. It shapes our imaginations around what's possible, what alternative futures could we imagine and pursue. So what happens when Dr. King's memory gets co-opted, as I show in the book, is that it actually generates this alternative reality And so when you distort memory, you're really telling a different story about who we are Mm -hmm. and why things are the way that they are. And so when it comes to the story of racial inequality, it becomes very easy to say, well, if racism ended with Dr. King and Dr. King himself would have opposed any sort of race conscious legislation, then we have to get rid of all of that legislation. We have to allow individuals to pursue their freedom as Dr. King would have wanted. And so this is the alternative reality through which this perception emerges that white Americans are the new victims of multicultural democracy and that they are the minorities now, that they're the ones under threat. If you think about, for example, great replacement theory, this theory that was advanced by Tucker Carlson on Fox News Mm -hmm. and, you know, by other sort of right wing characters 
this is a theory where white existence is under threat because of black and brown Americans, because of multicultural democracy. And it's that false narrative, it's that distorted history that really legitimizes a lot of violent action like we saw on January 6th in the insurrection at the Capitol. Who's in charge of collective memory? I guess by definition, nobody's really in charge of it. So how do we make sure that the the historic facts that took place in the 1960s and 1970s, that those facts form the basis of a collective memory today rather than this uh, somewhat distorted view that that you've outlined that we've seen and with his work with king's work being used to support causes that in all likelihood he would have been abhorrent to him yeah and collective memory is really supposed to be the domain of the people it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be a collective story that we as the people come together to uphold But there's always, by its very nature, going to be contestation in collective memory. There has never been a sort of collective memory that everyone agrees with, especially when it comes to national memory. And you think about sort of different positionalities, different ways that people have experienced the past. There's never going to be one account. Mm -hmm. But there's an institutionalized account that becomes quite powerful. And so this is not just the one that lives in textbooks, although that really is a powerful one for socializing children into what happened before. But it's also the one that we celebrate, you know, every year on the national holidays. It's the one that we see in our monuments, you know, the images that we see in the news and the media, the films that we watch. And I opened the book with a story in the preface about how my real interest in the civil rights movement emerged out of a lot of these movies that I was watching as a kid you uh-huh. know, I was growing up in the 90s. And we didn't have cable, so I always just sort of watch whatever was on TV. Uh And there were these movies like, you know, The Long Walk Home, The Ernest Green Story, that completely captured my imagination. They were stories of the civil rights movement, of, you know, these individual struggles. And they told such a powerful story about, you know, black and good white people coming together Mm -hmm. and holding hands and fighting the evil white supremacists and They had these happy endings where it felt like racism was going to end and everything was going to be okay. And it was sort of a rosy and jolly telling of the civil rights movement. It's really the one that I carried until, frankly, college. I mean, I think college is when I I first received a sort of critical education in what actually happened and the fact that Mm -hmm. there was a reason racial inequality had not ended. And so this is all to say that who decides on the collective memory is, is always going to be a collective and contested process but that the account that gets the most power is the one that gets institutionalized and maintained by those in power. So that does include government, it includes the gatekeepers, the media owners, and and the folks that really carry the wealth to drive that narrative. Now, collective memory resides in all of us. So it's incumbent on all of us to recall if we were there at the time, to to state the case. Tell me, coming back to your research, as you did your research for this book, were there any surprises that came out to you? Absolutely. I think one of the first surprises that emerged is the one that now seems so obvious because it truly does play out in the news every day, which is the one that right-wing groups had been co-opting the memory of Dr. King and the civil rights movement for quite some time. So I think when I initially started the research, to me, it seemed like a newer phenomenon that really was catalyzed in Obama's presidency and the sort of backlash, or as the historian Carol Anderson calls it, white lash, that emerged from having a black president, the rise of the Tea Party, 
the significant movement right of both parties because of the Tea Party. And what I came to find is that, you know, that that white lash had been brewing since the gains of the civil rights movement. And as I understand now, there's always been that white lash. There's always been reactionary politics and a sort of reverse reckoning that comes with every moment of attempted racial progress and social progress. And that is the story of America. That is the story of a multicultural democracy. And I think, you know, that for me was the first surprise. The second surprise I'd say is that while it was very easy to approach the question, building on these prior studies that showed minority rights groups had used civil rights memory in order to gain their own rights. And it seems like a sort of beautiful carrying on of the legacy. What I was surprised to find is that internally, there were a lot of dynamics where the movements themselves within their group histories had to also reckon with the past and reckon with their own anti-Blackness. So, you know, for example, the immigrant rights movement, they come to the table, they're mobilizing in 2003, and they want to engage in an immigrant rights freedom ride. So they really want to build on the legacy of civil rights movements, freedom rides to now claim rights for immigrants. Mm -hmm. And what happens is initially there are these sort of concerns about the fact that black people are not being incorporated into the movement itself, mm -hmm. that black immigrants exist and that racism exists within immigrant communities. So there's this process of sort of a truth and reconciliation of reckoning with these histories of anti-Blackness within their communities, of having to then turn to Black communities and build those relationships and bridges before they feel comfortable saying, are you okay with us using this legacy? Do we have your blessing? And ultimately, Black civil rights leaders stand with that. You know, there's this, this really beautiful moment where Congressman John Lewis stands with immigrant white rights workers and really supports them, says that this is a continuation of the civil rights movement. Mm. And so that for me was also a surprise that it's not as if it's sort of this clear line between progressive uses are good and conservative uses are bad, it's actually quite complex. And there's a lot of sort of messiness and internal reckoning that has to occur within movements themselves. Moving on, tell me about your journey as a C-I-F-A-R, Global RZLE, which is a, a scholarship, a fellowship. Tell us about that scholarship and uh, the work that you've been able to accomplish with that fellowship. I am so thrilled that you brought up CIFAR because I have just returned from our first meeting, the first meeting with me as a scholar included, in Toronto. And actually, it was a little bit east of Toronto, St. John technically, which threw me because it was a whole hour difference from East Coast time. With all that said, it was such a beautiful coming together of just different disciplines. So CIFAR stands for the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, for listeners who are not familiar with it. It is a really brilliant program where they support junior scholars who are sort of thinking outside disciplinary boundaries mm -hmm. and who are taking on the big questions of humanity. And so there are scientists, there are social scientists, we've got philosophers, humanities, right? So there's people just all across the disciplinary spectrum thinking about these questions in different ways with different methodologies. And it has been thrilling because I think one of the things that happens in academia, and I don't want to speak for every discipline, but you know, certainly within my own, is that the disciplinary boundaries can sort of suffocate you over time because you really get sucked into the kind of rabbit holes of your niche interests. You're kind of talking to other scholars. You get really sort of mired in jargon and forget how to, to make any sort of concept sound legible or translate for anybody else. 
so in this space, it, you know, for one thing, it was cognitive heavy lifting. I was exhausted after each day, but I was also so energized because I realized, you know, during the process, I really realized just how little I know, which I think can ultimately be, it can make you feel very vulnerable, especially as a scholar, we all have very big egos. Mm -hmm. You know, it can make you feel a, a little intimidated and defensive potentially, but no, I mean, I think when you create a space where there's safety in the unknown, there's safety in the questions that you've never thought to answer or potentially were answering in a completely different way, so much creative generation can happen. And so I really have to shout out CIFAR for creating a space like that. And I, I would beseech other organizations to consider funding spaces like this, where scholars can come together and think about big questions together. Is there one big question at that seminar that really stands out in your memory, Hajar? Well, I think one for me is I think a lot about questions of belonging in my research, and I think about it across boundaries. So not only national belonging, just the question of human belonging and you know why it is that we feel like we belong in certain spaces and not in others, and specifically how that belonging shapes the way that we imagine our agency and the work that we can do for the future. So what's exciting to me is that I'm part of a program within CIFAR that's centered around boundaries, membership, and belonging. Mm -hmm. But there's also a group within CIFAR that's centered around brains, minds, and consciousness. And I started to realize there's some really interesting synergies between the ways that we're thinking about memory and belonging and the way that they're thinking about memory and individuals and imaginations. And so that, for me, is a place where I think we could really do some really cool collaborative work to think about if it is the case that our memory shapes our imagination, mm -hmm. is there a way we can manipulate that and create more spaces where everyday people can just imagine more freely? And in a lot of ways, I think that's going to require better understanding the past. And certainly, and that brings us right back to your book and the, the concept of collective memory. So it sounds as though the, the time that you spent there at, uh, in St. John's with the, uh, with the CIFAR Global RZLE scholars was time well spent. It was wonderful. Well, Hajar, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about this remarkable book that you've written? I would love for listeners, of course, to pick up the book, The Struggle for the People's King, but also just to take away from our conversation that it's not just the, the sort of recognition that the past matters for the future. It's not just the recognition that historical revisionism is dangerous. I really want my listeners or our listeners, I really want us to understand collectively that we can resist these revisionist histories and that in order to do so, we ought to turn to the Black communities who have the grounded knowledge and mm -hmm. have been fighting this system for centuries. They really can shed light on the directions that we ought to take. And the real legacies of the civil rights movement of Dr. King are ones that show us that a critical education and a spiritual education are critical. They are really the path forward because a critical education will teach us how to contextualize our own lives within a broader history across borders and boundaries and time. And that's a lifeline. It connects us to one another. It really makes us think about, you know, how Dr. King described this inescapable network of neutrality. And so that's where a critical education is one that we ought to fight for. A spiritual education is one that I think we often forget about. And it's really critical because it's the one that activates our sense of morality, mm -hmm. our commitment to one another, our connection to the natural world and beyond. 
And it's the one that reminds us that we are at our very core social beings. And so what are we living for if not one another? And so I think those are really the big takeaways that I hope listeners will think about, especially when it comes to the sort of everyday things that we can do to resist and not to sit by idly while these revisionist histories and the politics that motivate them just take place and reshape and erode our multicultural democracy. Very thoughtful. We're ending on a very inspirational note. And where can our listeners buy a copy of your book? Yeah, I would love that. I mean, so you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. And you can also find me on my website. So that's hajaryazdiha.com, H-A-J-A-R-Y-A-Z-D-I-H-A.com. And I'm also on Twitter. So you can find me at Prof Yazdiha. And just for the benefit of our listeners, once again, the title of the book is The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And again, your Twitter handle is Prof. Haj Yazdiha. Haj Yazdita. Excellent. Yes. Now, in closing, can you share with us and with our listeners any new research projects that you're working on? I have a couple of research projects I'm really excited about. And so one is with a graduate student who is actually soon to be an assistant professor. Congrats to her, Blanca Ramirez. And we are thinking about voter ID legislation and the way that it shapes how immigrant serving organizations do their work. And so it's this real question of, is there a spillover effect when you introduce voter ID legislation and it sort of has this chilling effect on voting amongst vulnerable communities? What do organizations do? What are their strategies to either contest or try to mediate those dangerous effects? I'm actually working on another project that thinks about Gen Z and their political activism in the wake of COVID. And I've been interviewing these student activists. And I have to tell you, Gen Z gets a bad rap. They are awesome. They are (laughs) brilliant. They are going to save us all. We just have to let them. And so it's been a really inspiring project. And I really think, you know, fundamentally, a lot of the, the research that's emerging out of my agenda right now is just thinking about the future. I think I'm really committed to thinking about what possibilities are imaginable and how we can pursue them. Mm -hmm. And and just in closing, I I can't let you go without asking your thoughts about the subject of the moment, artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence in your particular field. Well, let me tell you, ChatGPT has completely thrown us professors (laughs) for a loop. It is creating so much extra work for us to try to identify if a robot wrote the essay or if it was a student. But, you know, I think there can always be benefits. I've certainly heard in terms of research, I've heard that it can be a wonderful way to accumulate a lot of data very quickly. Also to translate interviews, for example. But, you know, I think I always want to emphasize that AI is not free of human input. We have Mm -hmm. scholars like Safia Noble and Rua Benjamin who have shown very convincingly that AI and all sorts of forms of tech are human made. And so all of that human bias and the systems of racism that exist in our outside world do get input into these systems as well. So we have to really think about them critically and also be very careful with them. On that note, again, I want to thank you, Hajar, for a very enlivening and inspirational conversation today. And I urge all of my listeners to make sure that they take a look at The Struggle for the People's King. Excellent book and look forward to having you come back and share your research in the future. Thank you so much, Jim. This has been great. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 417. 
The podcast is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total, with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.